0: Let us pray. Father, we give you great thanks that you call us to yourself in Jesus to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be transformed. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning, and if um, everybody's ready to start back to school tomorrow as well, for those that are, and um, I want to invite you to turn this morning as we continue our study of Ephesians, we'll be concluding chapter 2 of Ephesians this morning, looking at verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2, so if you could turn in your Bibles or devices with scripture on them to Ephesians chapter 2. As you turn, I do want to give credit to Lynn Kohook. Kohik, rather, for her wonderful commentary on Ephesians that I've leaned on very heavily as I've prepared this sermon. In these verses, verses 11 through 22, St. Paul expounds on what he wrote in in verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, emphasizing the believer's new life in Christ and the implications of this reality of new life when it is lived out. 20th century theologian Karl Barth has said of verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians chapter 2, that these verses are the key and high point of the whole epistle. I think as we look at these verses this morning, they're best divided into three sections. First, beginning with verses 11 through 13, St. Paul begins with what I call a sobering recollection, directed predominantly to his Gentile audience, and we know the makeup of his audience from weeks past as we've looked at Ephesians 1 and 2. But Paul takes his readers, if you will, on a sobering walk down what I would call memory lane to the time before they heard the message of the gospel. And as he reminds them of that time, listen to his strong words in verses 12 and 13. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Paul calls them to remember these realities. And he says this, speaking not only of them as individuals, but of them as a collective community of believers, because in, in Paul's day, very foreign in some ways to our American individualism, which is extreme and often not scriptural, there was no thought of this not also being a community matter, of this not also being a matter for them living together as the people of God. So they remember who they were individually, but they also remember who they were as a community before Christ. And he points them to their hopelessness outside of and apart from Christ in order, hear this, in order to emphasize the magnitude of what God has done For them in Christ. To emphasize God's incredible work on their behalf in Christ. Because indeed, it is only God who can take someone who is spiritually dead and bring him or her back to life. It is only God who can work transformation from the inside that makes us new creations in Christ so that true and genuine amendment of life happens through transformation and not just through some superficial veneer of change. These Gentiles had been, they were outside of God's covenants, outside that means of God's salvation. And they were close to, even immersed in ignorance, darkness, and the immorality of the pagan, polytheistic, false religions of which they were a part. They were, as we saw two weeks ago in Ephesians 2, 1, dead in their trespasses and sin. St. Paul, along this same line, reminds us in Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So why does Paul take them down this bleak path once again? He does this to ultimately reaffirm and build them up, to build them up and strengthen them in the transforming power of the gospel, to renew them in an understanding and a grasp of the breadth and the depth of God's great love toward them in Christ and God's great love toward you and me in Christ as well that God through Christ has made this transformation possible that is not possible through any other person or any other means. And he reminds them of this because it is God at his own merciful and gracious initiative who has indeed acted in Jesus Christ to incorporate into his fold even those who were most distant. Thanks be to God. And this is, brothers and sisters, the consistent heart of God in Scripture. I know I've, I've told this illustration or this story of times in the past here, but I think it's appropriate again to emphasize today, when I was in seminary in one of my homiletics class, that's a preaching class, we were watching videos of renowned preachers and discussing and analyzing them. And we watched a a video of a John Stott sermon. Some of you know who John Stott is, great Church of England minister who's with the Lord now. And John Stott talked about the idea of the exclusivity of God in the Old Testament with God's Old Testament people that were set apart. But then he went on to emphasize that that exclusivity in the Old Testament was to preserve the bloodline through which the Messiah would come in the world. So God's exclusivity was not simply for the purpose of setting a people apart and being exclusive, but rather it was so that ultimately all could potentially be invited into God's fold through Jesus Christ. This is the heart of God. Remember the parables of Jesus, especially those in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep where 99 sheep are in the fold, but the shepherd goes out after that one lost sheep to bring that sheep in. Or the lost coin, or the prodigal son in Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. And how are we who were far off brought near? Well, look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. It is only through the appropriation of Christ's sacrifice by means of the blood of the sinless son of God that any of this is possible. It is only through Christ. It is only what he accomplished that we can be brought from death to life, that we can be made new creations that our lives from the inside out can be transformed. We are reconciled, brothers and sisters, through Christ's sacrifice. We are reconciled to God through Christ's sacrifice and only by this means. There is no other way. Secondly, Paul emphasizes in verses 14 through 18 the supernatural unifying reality of Christ's sacrifice. Not only were they and we no longer enemies with God because Christ has put an end to that hostility between us and God through his cross. But God has created a new humanity through Christ's death which even brings former human enemies together. Gentiles who were far off and Jews who were near now both are together one in Christ, and bearers of the same Holy Spirit of God. We have peace with God, and out of that peace that we have with God through Jesus Christ, we also have peace with our fellow believers, our fellow new creations in Christ. In her commentary, Lynn Kohick says it this way, this peace creates something new. A single entity reconciled to God And this peace kills something old. The enmity that existed between humans all made in God's image. And it's not simply that Christ has made peace. Hear this. It is not simply that Christ has made peace. The fact is he himself is peace. He himself is our peace. Peace is something not that Christ simply brings, but it is something that flows from his very being, his very character and nature. And Christ has made one body, his church, consisting of Jews and Gentiles together. And he's broken down, as verse 14 tells us, the dividing wall of hostility. And that that verse specifically speaks of the balustrade or the dividing wall in the temple in Jerusalem, which separated the court of the Gentiles at that time from those holy areas reserved only for Jews. Christ has broken down that dividing wall. And in doing this, there is now one unified people of God. Christ did not come as he said to abolish the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it in Christ. The law is now complete. We need to remember that the Old Testament, everything about the law, the sacrificial system, all of it pointed to Christ. And it wasn't as if Jews were just kept by going through through the motions of keeping the law. You'll hear that taught sometimes. That is not the case. The law required faith. Faith in God's promises of the one to come who would redeem Israel and all of humanity. And without that faith, the law was a hollow shell. It was meaningless. But the law gave them a means to express express fidelity to their God, the one true God, when they were surrounded with pagan nations. The sacrificial system gave them a means to express contrition for their sin. And it pointed to the sacrifice of Christ the promise of the one yet to come. And now God has made a new people, one people, according to his promises. God, as Ephesians says, who has made both one. I want to talk about one other thing here. You will sometimes hear, and there's a theology that became very prevalent in the late 19th and early 20th century in many circles called dispensationalism. And dispensationalism basically teaches that Israel was God's plan A. When they rejected God, that God's plan B, I'm I'm simplifying it, but this is the essence of it, was Christ and the church. And somehow Jews can still be saved even after the, the death and resurrection of Christ by keeping the law. And there's one salvation track for Jews who are faithful and have fidelity to the law. And there's a separate track of salvation for Christians through the church. That is not right. That is not true. That is not scriptural. The reality is Christ came to fulfill the law and through the fulfillment of the law and his sacrificial death and resurrection, all people come to faith and living relationship with God in and through Jesus Christ. Remember, in the Old Testament, their faith was in the promise of the one to come. Now, our faith, Jew and Gentile alike, is in the promise fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jews come to faith in God, the living God, through Christ, just like everyone else. In concluding this point, we must also realize that this is not just about breaking down a wall of separation between Jews. Those, as Paul says, who were near, and Gentiles, those were far off. But hear this. Other divisions as well. The ground at the cross is level. The cross makes the ground level for all people. The goal of God-given peace, only available in Christ, is life with God. Look at verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. We both have access in one spirit to the father. God calls us through his spirit to unity in him. But hear me, unity, and I've used this illustration before as well, but unity is not uniformity. Everybody looks the same. Everybody talks the same. Everybody does exactly the same things at exactly the same time. Those of you who were in the military, and there's many in our congregation, understand that in the military, that is necessary to get everyone to look the same, respond the same, to do the same things. But those of you who are in the military know full well that that doesn't necessarily change someone's heart inside in any way at all. God doesn't call us to external uniformity. He calls us to God-breathed unity in our diversity through the transforming work of the shared spirit of God. And God's purpose in Christ is that all of God's people be brought together in this new unity. That was a revolutionary idea in the first century, to think that Jews and Gentiles would be brought together in unity And beyond those frames, which we'll look at in just a moment, it is still revolutionary even in the 20th century. Because God given unity requires different persons coming together in one body in Christ, and the hostility that exists between people is put to death. In Galatians chapter 3, St. Paul reminds us there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So godly unity is much more than just this Jew-Gentile dichotomy. Men and women, slave, free, rich, poor. We all are one, we are unified. Christ because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I think that causes should cause us to pause and ask ourselves, are we made uncomfortable by this picture of godly, God-breathed unity? And if we are, if we're willing to admit that to ourselves if we are uncomfortable, why is it that it makes us uncomfortable? and if we're uncomfortable what in us that is not of god needs to die in our individual lives in the life of this church is there pride is there a sense of superiority based on nationality or nation of birth or language or social class or a career or ethnicity or family heritage And I can go on and on and on. If any of those things are coming into play, and because of those things, we think we are superior to other people, that needs to die. It needs to die. Because it hinders the unity that God wills for us to have as his people in Christ. Unity in the midst of our diversity. Maybe you know I'm an NFL fan and forgive me, but I'm a Ravens fan and I'm, I'm still purple. I mean, it's clear God is a Ravens fan because the liturgical color for Advent, which is much of football season, is purple. I mean, but one game that I do not watch that I hate every year is the Pro Bowl. And the reason I hate it is because it's kind of a half football game. You, you know what I'm talking about? Nobody plays all that hard. But when you watch the Pro Bowl where the NFL All-Stars from both conferences, from their various teams come together, they all wear the same uniform for each conference. But what's, what's different? I, I heard somebody say it. Helmet. helmet. Yeah, they wear the helmet of their the home AFC team. Or the NFC? Yes, but they wear the helmet of their team. So even if you're in the AFC, if you're a Raven, you wear a Ravens helmet. So you still have the helmet of your your sub-tribe, if you will, even when you're playing. And you don't hit real hard because you don't want to get injured and mess up your contract or mess up your team's chances for the playoffs. You you, you hear what I'm saying? So even though they're on the all-star team wearing matching jerseys, they wear a separate helmet. And it's like that in the church sometimes because we might wear jerseys or uniforms that say Christ but we wear a helmet that says ethnic culture or language group or sex or family heritage or one of those things. And that's really more even than the God side. Sometimes when reality comes down to it, that's the side we're on. And after we finish the little thing like the Pro Bowl, we think we're going to go back and play with our squad, with our little local team. And I'm not going to run as hard with those that are not, and I'm not going to play as hard for those that aren't on my squad. But the reality is for those of us who are in Christ, that that needs to flip because we need to be on the gospel team. We need to be on the Christ team. We need to be on the team that bears the image of Christ above any of those other categories, those temporal earthly categories in which we might fall, in which we might land or belong Because we are one in Christ. We are one in Christ. In the midst of our beautiful diversity, we are one. And those other things all need to diminish and fall aside so that Christ is preeminent. Finally and briefly... Ephesians chapter 2 talks about a lasting foundation in verses 19 through 22. And there's some things here that I'm not going to touch on because we'll deal with them later in great detail in Ephesians. But all of us as believers, again, back to this theme of unity, are one household, one family in Christ under the same Father. Think of verse 18 again. You through him both have access in one spirit to the Father. We are fellow citizens of God's kingdom in Christ. And our identity must be, our identity is truly rooted in Christ and not in labels and temporal identities of this world. Because every single one of us, regardless of background, regardless of earthly labels, is of equal worth in God's eyes. Every one of us. Amidst our wide array of differences, Christ establishes this beautiful reality that the underpinning of all of this is his own redemptive and reconciling work on the cross. So that we are at peace with God and that we are together as God's people, the church, the church in heaven, the church on earth, the church throughout the earth. Look at verse 22. In Him, you also are being built together in a, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You, we are being built together. The question for each of us today, and for us as a church, is will we continue to yield to God's good and gracious transforming work, being aligned as we yield to that more and more with His will and His purposes? Will we yield to God's will and work purposefully and intentionally? Did you hear that? Purposefully and intentionally to build beautiful God-breathed unity and diversity as we are built up together. Will we do that by God's grace? Or will we allow ourselves to be those who hold on to temporal identities, who sow division, who assert personal agendas and preferences, taking our lead from the world and from the flesh. All these other identities we talked about, and even other identities like what I do in ministry, and that begins with me, that is not my identity. Whatever you're calling and gifting in ministry here in the church, it is by God's grace, but your identity is in Christ. It's not that you are the youth pastor or a a Stephen minister or a children's minister, that is not your identity. Your identity is in Christ. My identity has to be in Christ. So will we be God's instruments? Will we continue to yield to his gracious transformation to purposefully and intentionally build God-breathed unity and diversity, knowing that God has made us all beautiful individuals And yet in the midst of that diversity, he in Christ and the one true Holy Spirit of God makes true God-breathed unity and purpose for Christ's kingdom possible. That is his call to us as individuals, as families, as a church, to be unified in Christ and to break down those dividing walls that exist in the genuine body of Christ so that we can be ever more effective in reflecting Christ's eternal kingdom because our citizenship is in heaven. Let us pray. So Father, we are so grateful for Jesus who is our peace, who has made peace with you possible, even among us who were at enmity with God that Christ has reconciled us to you and brought us into living, transforming relationship with you. And father, thank you that Christ also makes it possible for us to live at peace with our brothers and sisters. And in the beautiful people that you've made each of us to be created in your image with our differences and our diversities, our life histories, our backgrounds, that you call us to be unified in you. So Father, speak to us. Speak to us even now. And show us those places where we hinder your unity. Lord, show us those places where we hold on to the things of this world and the flesh that need to die in us, that need to die in the life of this church so that we can more fully and freely be who you have called us to be as your church, as your people, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.